From the recording studios of Reconstructing Judaism, welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversation. You know, we know as Jews when people deny the Holocaust how upset we get, you know, so how much, you know, we, we should have sympathy when this crime, which is vaster in scale, in time, in numbers, is denied on so many levels. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman. We have a great show for you today. We have a special treat in that sitting in with me is our executive producer, Rabbi Jacob Staub, a longtime professor at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College who runs the Evolve Project. Welcome, Jacob. I'm excited to tag team with you today. Thanks, Brian. I'm really thrilled to be here. Jacob, you're the boss. So what do we have on deck for today? Our guest today, Brian, is my rabbinic colleague and friend, Rabbi Tova Spitzer, and we'll be discussing her essay, Slavery and Its Atonements. The essay is a nuanced, moving piece, and I'm eager to get into our discussion. So like you said, it's a pretty nuanced, um, detailed essay, and we, and we, get, we, we, we really get into the nitty-gritty of, of some of Rabbi Spitzer's arguments. So... Jacob, can you give us a sense of the broad outlines what this what this essay is about? I think it'll I think it'll really help our listeners. Sure, Brian. Rabbi Spitzer is um, interested in what our collective responsibility might be for slavery. We often think that that's something that happened a long time ago. We um, feel sympathetic to the suffering, the terrible suffering of the victims of chattel slavery. But uh, if we, if our grandparents arrived at the end of the 19th century and we haven't ourselves been slave owners, what is our responsibility? That's the question that she is raising. And her approach is to go to the text of the Torah, um, specifically to Deuteronomy 21, which tells the story of a, a, a dead person found between cities and uh, how the responsibility for that death lies corporately with the nearest city. Even if none of the people did it, um, there still needs to be atonement for it. So um, the first point is that she makes is that there's communal responsibility for what happens even if you were not personally involved. And the second right. point is that um, sin is not private. It's not um, – if I do something wrong, it affects everyone, right? So if one person kills someone, we all are responsible. And the third point is that we don't have to be conscious about it. And that sin, the sinner isn't necessarily bad. In the case of killing someone, it's bad. But the uh, but sin needs to be atoned for, not to be punished. So her point is that atoning for slavery is something that we all must do. And Jews, non-Jews, humans, really. everyone, everyone, because the entire industrial revolution 
was powered by slave labor for no other reason, but also because of our, our common humanity. Um, and that the way to atone is to acknowledge, first of all, to acknowledge responsibility and not to feel terrible like, wait, did I do something terrible? I wasn't a slave owner. Rather, um, I, as a member of this nation, of this community, I am responsible to acknowledge um, the uh, terror and evil and cruelty uh, on which my society is based. I can't ignore it. So the beginning of the essay differentiates between prophetic and, and, and priestly literature. And I gather that that is getting into the, the um, scholarly theories that different groups of authors wrote different parts of the Torah and part of the Torah was written by, by what we know as the priest. Did do, what, what about that do we need to know um, in, order to, in order to really grasp um, the rabbi's larger point? Or, or is it not, not that, not no, that it, key? It, great question. It is important because um, we may not know or we may forget that the Bible, the Torah, the five books of Moses and beyond uh, is not written by a single hand and does not have a single point of view on many issues. So we may think of that um, uh, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, rail against evil and um, uh, demand um, justice. Um, whereas another segment of Israelite society, the Kohanim, the priests, uh, understood mm -hmm. sin um, as not as a moral offense, but rather as kind of metaphysical, concrete wow. um, stain on the community that needs to be repaired. This is important because if we take that point of view, I don't have to think I'm bad in order to need to atone. I need everybody's sins. Everybody does wrong. And what you do when you atone, you go on Yom Kippur to synagogue or when I'm retrojecting. But when, when you do something wrong, you offer a sacrifice or you, you uh, beat your chest or you, you acknowledge, you express your regret um, and um, you're atoned. You've atoned. You are, are free of the sustain of the sin. And I think it makes sense what you're talking about, uh, atonement, that that this essay actually began life as a Yom Kippur sermon, correct? Correct. It does. It, it, it's, um, it, in addition to the whole issue of slavery and atoning for, uh, for slavery, I think it's a brilliant um, evocation of what Yom Kippur could mean. Like, I beat my breast in synagogue on Yom Kippur for all these things that I didn't do, but I'm still responsible for them, and I need to atone for the communal um, errors and mistakes because I'm part of the community. And even if I am responsible, even if I have uh, violated, transgressed, um, transgressed uh, commandments or, or moral uh, uh, imperatives, so I transgressed, and now I can get beyond it. I can cleanse myself 
and proceed ahead. All right. So, as a reminder, all of the essays discussed on this show are available to read for free on the Evolve website, which is evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave a review. The ratings and reviews really help other people find out about the show. All right, without further ado, let's get to our guests. Rabbi Tobas Spitzer is spiritual leader of Dorshe Sedek in Newton, Massachusetts. From 2007 to 2009, she served as president of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical Association. In 2008, Newsweek named Rabbi Spitzer to its list of the top 50 rabbis in America, and she's the immediate past president of the Massachusetts Board of Rabbis. In her Evolve essay, Slavery and Its Atonement, Rabbi Toba Spitzer explores the impact of slavery and the white Jewish obligation to respond. Rabbi Spitzer, welcome to the show. We're thrilled to have you. Great to be here. So I want to start with your wonderful um, description of your visit to the plantation outside of New Orleans. You, you seem to say that the uh, motivation or the beginning of you really thinking about reparations was that trip. Can you narrate for us a bit about what was at the plantation, what you experienced, and what conclusions you derived? Sure. So, you know, I mean, the setting was the spring of 2017. So um, our president had taken office that January and the sort of rise in white nationalist and white supremacist rhetoric and, you know, violence against people of color and Jews and LGBT people, you know, all, it was sort of in the mix of all that. I think like many of us was thinking about how did our country get to this place? You know, what's going on? Um, I was visiting a friend who's from New Orleans um, and she invited me to go with her to the Whitney plantation and just getting this first, you know, sort of very powerful experience of slave narratives of, being in the spot where, you know, slaves had been killed, you know, after a rebellion. I think in the context of sort of this, you know, new world it felt like we were in, realizing that it really wasn't a new world at all and that this, uh, these issues had really been with us since slavery. And just, it got, just became very clear to me that we have to deal with this. Like this is foundational to who we are as a nation, really along with the genocide of Native Americans. I don't want to obscure that, but in this case, it was at this particular experience. And it just hit me in this way that until we really deal with this legacy of, of, of slavery, that's why we're at where we're at. Our president is a symptom, not a cause. And, um, and, and it was really from there that I started thinking about how was I going to wrestle with this? You know, what precedes reparations, which is a wrestling with this as a society, communally, and at some point realizing that I wanted to look at the rituals available to us in our, you know, in, in the priestly literature that we read from the Torah, a part of on Yom Kippur. So I think we're really interested in this, in this concept of, of looking at slavery through the prism of, of priestly and, and biblical and the biblical concept of sin. And I think in, 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 in our society, in our culture, if, if, if we think of sin at all, we think of, we think of sin as something that's, that's intentional, and and you really delve into the concept of 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 the unintentional sin and how that was how that was understood in in sort of the the through the biblical lens. So can you 
Can you expound, expand on or, or explain that? Like how, how Judaism yeah. thinks of sin as unintentional and how that really relates to our reckoning with, with slavery. For sure. Yeah. I think, I think this whole wrestling with sin and getting back to the priestly concept of it, someone, I don't know who, whose quote this is, but someone, as I was talking about this idea before I wrote the talk, someone said to me that someone famous said, um, the worst thing that ever happened to sin was Christianity and psychotherapy. Um, you know, which was sort of these two, on the one hand, sort of the Christian side, the idea of original sin is sort of a stain that if we sin, we are irreparably, you know, damaged or perverted in some way. And then on the psychological side that, you know, sin is like a sort of an, in, there's sort of a psychological, you know, intentional aspect of, of doing wrong. Whereas I think for the priests, there were two aspects of it that I talk about that I think are really important. One is it's not private. It's not about personal failing. It's about actions that an individual or society take that have repercussions throughout the society. You know, the Hebrew Bible is so communal in its orientation. The individual is not that important, you know, quite individual. And so when we look at systematic oppression like slavery, to think about sin in the context of of a society, to think of a model of, of sin like the priestly model that thinks of sin as an aberration in a society that affects everyone, I think is very powerful. And that's related, I think, to the notion of this, you know, this idea of a chet bishgaga, you know, something done in error or inadvertently. And, you know, it's, and it's so weird, right, for us to think of, you know, so when you realize you've done a sin, then you have to go do something about it. So like, first of all, how do you realize, like, well, all of a sudden you're realizing, um, and, and I, you know, in my research, the, it, there, there could be inadvertent ethical errors, just as there could be inadvertent ritual errors. And Leviticus is totally clear that a leader could commit this such an error, or the entire community could commit the error, and intent has nothing to do with it. And I think that's so important. And this actually part of the talk, to be honest, to me is really the heart of the, of the piece, because I feel like the main or one of the main obstacles to getting white people to really be willing to deal with racism, to even think about reparations, is this deep fear that if I say I engage in any racist behavior or if I, you know, benefit in any way from racism, it must mean I'm a racist, which then means I'm a bad person. And I, I really searched and like nowhere does it say that the person who sins is bad. Like it just it's not part of the priestly concept. It's about unwholesome actions. It's about failures of judgment. And it can be and reparation can be made, you know, a, a right relationship can be restored. And, and the story I tell in the article is about right before um, Yom Kippur that year was the were the events in Charlottesville. In this interview, I heard with the Ku Klux Klan member, this old white guy and this Latina reporter talking to him. And I don't know what he was responding to. But, you know, and this guy goes, well, I'm not a racist. And I, I almost like fell out of my chair. It's like you're a member of the KKK. But I was like, all right. If to be a racist is so bad that even a member of the KKK won't admit it, then we white people have some work to do, you know, and I can't make him the racist that I'm not the racist. You know, it's like we're both on this continuum. I hopefully I'm way more woke than he is, but, you know, it's implicit in our brains. We can't help it. You know, it's in our it's in the DNA of our society. It's in our brains and we have to just keep looking at it. And it doesn't matter if it's intentional or not. If I hurt someone or if I benefit from a racist system, I have to under, you know, I have to acknowledge it. So that to me was where this whole notion of 
you know, of a, 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 a an unintentional sin. That's where that took me. And I feel it's so liberating. And I think as white people, white people in general and white Jews in specific to, to be able to use that and get like, no one, people of color don't want to deal with our guilt. You know, they just want to deal with like making things right. So if we can just get this whole guilty stuff out of the way and just talk about what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? How do I act better? I think it'll just be better for everyone involved. I'm going to jump in and go, go a little out of, out of order. I mean, first off, I mean, for, for our, for our listeners, out there we should we should acknowledge that 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 this is we have three three white jews sitting around talking about an an issue that's that's central to our nation but just want to acknowledge that and the perspective that we that we bring in your essay in kind of describing your your family and and your your grandparents journey to the american dream you really lay out the facts of of what we would call white privilege but but you don't actually use that term and i'm wondering if that's conscious um especially for those who may may find it uncomfortable may find it jarring um i'm wondering you know i'm kind of wondering what you feel of the term and if it's and if it's helpful in in thinking about these things you know i think white privilege i think for those who know what it refers to it's not bad i have seen people not understand it so it deepens confusion rather than clarifying i tend to hear and think about in the context of how does my white skin today make me safe at a police stop or make me not you know make my kids not have to worry about being hauled off to jail if they make a mistake you know that's the context i think about white privilege you know so i don't think i i didn't consciously use it or not use it i think i didn't use it because i wasn't I, i was trying to actually address something else which is that for me part of the shift and this comes back to jacob's earlier question visiting the plantation, um, knowing I have white privilege still didn't make me feel particularly connected to slavery, you know, per se. It's like, yes, I have white privilege, but slavery isn't really, that's not my history. I didn't think of early American history as my history. Like 1700s, my folks were, you know, getting schmiced over in Russia. Like, I think in telling the story, you know, the sort of immigrant trajectory of my, my family was more to say, even though we arrived well after the Civil War was over, well after slavery was done, we are still implicated in, in the um, image from you know Deuteronomy of measuring the distance to the body. It's like, it's true. My friend, you know, who lives in New Orleans, her elders would be the ones closest to the body. They own slaves. She grew up in a house built by slaves. I did not, you know, but, but it doesn't mean I don't have to measure. It doesn't mean I don't have to do that measurement. And then what I you know, talk about in the article is all the ways that the legacy of slavery helps create white privilege. I urge everyone to read Half Has Never Been Told. It's very long. It's very detailed. The site is at the end of the article, but it's unbelievably detailed description of, of how foundational slavery was, not just to the U.S., but to the Industrial Revolution. And like really nothing we have today in our society would be there if not for the cotton, you know, enslaved Africans, you know, picking cotton in the South in the, in the 19th century. So that was the piece that was new for me, I think. So I'm, um, as I'm listening to you here, I'm not sure what conclusion to draw. Um, I think I just heard you say that um, slavery is the main thing that we need to face because all of the privilege that we have, and in fact the whole post-industrial society that we have and all the, the wealth that we have, 
uh, would not have a, have occurred without slavery. Um, so I'm wondering the, the place, my responsibility for Jim Crow or for um, post-World War II uh, housing policies or, or the things that go on, continue to go on today, um, how is it useful? Why is it useful um, to focus on slavery and not on what happened after 1865 and continues to happen today? Yeah, I don't, I don't, oh yeah, it's not to stop with slavery. I mean, I, to me, the slavery piece was really the invitation to then look at the rest of, of history. And I, again, I want, I do want to add that I think the Native American genocide is as foundational. Again, this talk was about slavery. I think there's like another talk to be written about that, but I think these concepts could apply there as well. So yes, of course, I think we need to educate ourselves. And I, and I think that does bring us back to reparations because, you know, when I read, um, read about H.R. 40. H.R. Uh, 40 is a bill that has been introduced every year in the House of Representatives in Washington that mandates the establishment of a commission to examine the causes, responsibilities, and effects of slavery. Um, people get all freaked out about, oh, who's going to pay and how much are we going to pay? Like That's actually not what this bill calls for. It calls for study. So it, it says, you know, this, if the bill was passed, it would establish, quote, a commission to study and develop reparation proposals for African Americans to examine slavery and discrimination in the colonies and the United States from, the, from 1619 to the present and recommend appropriate remedies. So that to me is the, mm-hmm. like, that's the task. It's, it's not just to say slavery was bad. It's to say, let's really look at our history. You know, when I talk about, um, the, the inadvertent sin, the first step it says you have to know it. So it's that knowing process, I think, that will then delve into everything you just mentioned, Jacob. And not to assign guilt. Not to say, okay, now I'm guilty because my parents benefited from the GI Bill. No, it's that, you know, we're all part of the system. And if we want to be healthy and have a healthy community, a healthy democracy, we have to engage in this study and talk about it. So slavery is really the, the beginning. But for me, it's because a lot of the white supremacist um, narrative now is, you know, and is... The, the Civil War wasn't really about slavery, you know, or slavery's not really that important, or it was going to die off anyway. None of that is true. So really wrestling, you know, going to me, going foundational is what then brings us to all those other those other issues. I think the um, thing that moves me, uh, has moved me the most um, in this direction is, are two things. First, the disparity between accumulated family wealth between um, white people and people of color, and then adding to that the fact that my wealth as a white person is the result of wealth generated um, by people of color um, both before and since the uh, the Civil War. And everyone's wealth. That's why I don't think the guilt model or trying to find clean money or dirty money, it's like, you know, this is where it comes from. This is just the reality. And I think if we, the better we could accept that reality and just say we're all in this, and we all have a shared responsibility and hopefully a shared desire to create, you know, to solve it. It's, it's really for all of our benefit. And that's why to me, the priestly texts were so liberating because, you know, like white liberal guilt is nowhere to be found. And white liberal guilt is so annoying. <laughs> and so it's such an obstacle to doing this work. Everybody's so afraid of being tainted, you know, and it's like, we're all tainted. We can't, when we're born, you know, it's in our brains by the time we're three, like we can't not be tainted. So let's just say, yes, we're tainted. Now let's, 
let's get to work. It's not a personal failing, you know. It can be it can be healed. Um, and I think that's where the reparations piece comes in. The notion of kapara, the notion that we make a conscious offering to help repair the psychological and the spiritual damage. You know that that the actual damage can never be undone. That's impossible. Um, the figures, the monetary figures involved are beyond calculation. The human figures are certainly beyond calculation. But a reparations process would be this process of reflection of some kind of economic adjustment, which we all have to be, you know, agreed to on some level. And then even, and then even deeper than that, some kind of healing process. But I think even just the acknowledgement would be such a, you know, we know as Jews, when people deny the Holocaust, how upset we get, you know, so how much, you know, we, we should have sympathy when this crime, which is vaster in scale, in time, in numbers, is denied on so many levels. You know, just just the acknowledgement is so powerful. So if you had to make a grand policy prescription or you, you, you were in charge, you would start with this this House resolution you referenced that, that calls for a government commission to study the issue of reparations on a society level. That's that's where you think we should start? I mean, I think it would be a great place to start. I mean, I think it feels like culturally, I mean, know the New York Times, you know, had just published something recently. Um, on about 1619. I mean, the conversation has started. So I, all of it, we, I mean, at the government level seems very important. It's not going to happen with this administration, but at some point, but yes, I think a national conversation would be very, very powerful. And, you know, we, we have something, they haven't done it perfectly, but I think Germany's had some of that national conversation. And I think, you know, my very small offering in this article was to try to see if our tradition, which thought a lot about sin, you know, had anything to offer. And I didn't know when I, to be honest, when I started, if it did, I didn't know what the answer to that question was. And I was really pleased, you know, to say, oh, actually, I think we do have something here to offer. And maybe the, the, these texts that we share with our Christian cousins, maybe these models can be helpful in, in trying to talk about this. Um, and I think, you know, that what you said before earlier, Brian, acknowledging that it's three white Jewish people talking about this, I think that's important. I think it's white people who need to have this conversation. You know, we're the ones that have the obstacles to talking about it in this way. So, this is really for us in, in a lot of ways, you know, to, to get over our internal obstacles to having this conversation. So we don't have time uh, today in this episode to get into Germany and West Germany, reparations, monuments, um, education about the Holocaust. But if you'd like to learn more and how and why it might relate to the issue of slavery in the United States, we've got a couple of uh, resources you can check out. On within the show notes on on our website. So where can where can individuals start? Where can Jewish communities start? Are you recommending like study groups? Um, can mm-hmm. you can you point to anything that's that's happened at, at your congregation? Yeah. So it's interesting. Before Ferguson happened in the summer of 2014, we were already doing some work on criminal justice reform with a local coalition, and then. Um, the events of uh, Ferguson in the summer of 2014 happened. And, and it was interesting. It's sort of, I think for some folks, it goes the other way. Like people do the study first and then go to action. We were sort of doing the criminal justice work. And then out of that work, some people doing that in, in the coalition said, we should really, we, the white, we're a predominantly white community. We should be actually talking about the underlying issues, which are race and racism. So a study group formed on our website, uh, org is a link to the, a, a reading list that that group has developed. And, this is both a group of people getting together to educate themselves, but also have periodic book discussions with the community. So we continue to do the tikkun olam work, but I think that 
personal reflection has been powerful. So that's, I think, one way. Um, and, you know, I know as a community, we are trying to do a better job of being more representative in terms of our school staff, in terms of people of color. So I, there's a ton, a ton that, you know, Jewish communities can be doing. The reform movement has done some great work around this. I know we have resources on the Evolve website. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, with, as with everything, awareness and study, you know, you know, maybe Lamasa hopefully brings us to action. And then the action leads back to more, more reflection. I wonder whether you have something to say about what role Jews of color have in this process. Um, I think I've slid in this conversation and often slide into thinking of Jews as white, um, things that Jews need to do to people of color, forgetting that between 12 and 20 percent of the Jewish community is con constituted of people of color. Do you have some thoughts about um, where people of color might fit into the work of the Jewish community here? I mean, I can just observe where I think, you know, Jews of color are fitting in. I think they're teachers and trainers. You know, I think I've certainly learned from listening to colleagues of color and their experiences and learning from the experiences of, you know, black folks in my community. And not because they're trying to teach me, but just because I, they're relaying their life to me and I'm listening, <laughs> you know, so just existing and being in our communities, maybe is just one thing we listen, you know, just to learn. <laughs> People of color, especially African Americans on this issue are the teachers, you know, not everybody, but almost everybody I list on my reading list, you know, is black. And I, so to me, that's been my, you know, my stance as learner. So I think I can't speak. I don't know what, you know, people of color should take whatever role they want to take. I mean, I, you know, in terms of being part of this conversation, but I, I can't imagine having a, a society wide conversation without the active leadership of the African American community on this, which I think, you know, this congressional bill is an example of that. You know, I, I want to just read the, the James Baldwin quote I have because, you know, ultimately if it's about my self-interest in this is not wanting to live in an America that's as, as crazy as it is right now. You know, it, it's hurting me. And I, I think that's the other piece about sin being social. Ultimately, we're all really hurt. So my hurt is obviously different than the hurt of a person of color. So I, I think, you know, collectively, we need to be thinking about what's 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 each of our piece of this work. We all have a piece of it. I, I'm not a person of color would have to tell you what piece they want to be for them. I can't say that. But Baldwin wrote, what I'm concerned about is what white Americans have done to themselves. What has been done to me is irrelevant simply because there is nothing more you can do to me. But in doing it, you've done something to yourself. In evading my humanity, you have done something to your own humanity. So there's this compassion. I think it's quite remarkable. He has. Then he goes on in another place to talk about the promise of this country. And again, this is James Baldwin, like someone who was very, very honest about the, you know, failings of the society. And he talks about any honest examination of the national life proves how far we are from the standard of human freedom with which we began. The recovery of this standard demands of everyone who loves this country a hard look at himself. For the greatest achievements must begin somewhere, and they always begin with the person. If we are not capable of this examination, we may yet become one of the most distinguished and monumental failures in the history of nations. That was written a long time ago. I feel like it's speaking to this moment, but he uses the word love, whoever loves this country, you know. Um, he does it because he wants to rescue America from itself, and we have to take a hard look, you know. So I... To me, that's what this is in the service of. It's taking a hard look to be better. But we have to look at those truths. And, and I, you know, I do tend to believe that truth will set you free. Like, if we really understand that this history, it, it will make us want to know more and it will make us 
better able to figure out the way forward. That's that's my belief. I, I'm with Baldwin on that one. I mean, it's interesting. There's another there's another piece, um, a valve piece, maybe um, where Rabbi and the movement discusses, you know, this this overpowering urge to go up to the first African American he sees and, and and profusely apologize. I mean, obviously that would be kind of uncomfortable and inappropriate. So what what do we do if we if we kind of get overpowered by these these feelings? What what's a are there are there positive ways to to channel that? Well, I think yeah, I think into I mean I think into activism and I think into being a being an ally and you can always ask someone like how can I be an ally to you you know and I think again coming back to the Yom Kippur rituals you know the fact that our sort of our ans- our ancient ancestors ritualized this you know to say we we know that humans have a need to ask forgiveness you know maybe what would come out of this reparations study are public you know displays of you know, of, of forgiveness. And it's, again, it's not just white people. I, you know, one of the, the first atonement for slavery I ever saw was, I think, in at least 10 years ago, I was in, um, Ghana with American Jewish World Service. And they, as part of that trip, they took us to a, a fort that had been the center of slave trading. Um, and in 1998, there was a plaque on the wall in 1998, the elders from the local community, these are Africans who were descended from people who had worked in the slave trade. They put up a plaque and they did a whole ritual asking for forgiveness from their ancestors. That was very moving to me that that community was like, we were complete, even though, you know, we, our community was targeted, we were also complicit. Some of us were complicit and those of us who were the descendants of those leaders need to take responsibility. So there are so many ways that I think collectively we white people can start, don't need to apologize to individual black people. If those black people don't really want to hear that from us, but can certainly start you know, there's the um, Equal Justice Initiative Museum and trying to get these towns throughout the South to put up markers where lynchings happen. I mean, there's so much public atonement. And I think that's what we're really talking about. We're talking about public atonement, not me going up to a random black person and saying, I'm really sorry that white people, you know, do terrible things. It's how do we work for public atonement? And I think that's, and that is where we can learn from, you know, the case of Germany um, and the very early, early beginnings here in the States, I think, of doing this work. And white people should be doing that work. Our tradition is, I mean, has descriptions and a lot of literature about, about slavery, certainly in the, in the Tanakh. I mean, it's a very different kind of slavery, but is that, is, 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 is going to those sourcefuls at all useful or, or helpful in it as, as commun- Jewish communities wrestle with this or, or, or is it somehow mis, you know, misleading or misdirecting? Um, let me step in. Um, so first, we know that there were a substantial, small but substantial number of Jewish slave traders in the U.S. Sure. But also, um, Jews were slave traders in the Middle Ages. Um, we uh, went to Slavic countries and took Slavs out and traded them in North Africa. Um, so um, there's no dearth of information about our complicity worldwide and throughout history i think but everybody and i'll just add though but i don't yeah and and that's been unfortunately that canard has been used against jews in an anti-semitic way everybody was involved in slavery and everybody were slave traders you know so arabs were slave traders africans were slave traders jews were so you know it's slavery has always existed so i don't is it in the torah of course it's in the torah i don't i mean the torah tried to imagine a different world our narrative is a band of slaves who were liberated 
you know, and two chapters later, the, you know, the Torah couldn't even imagine a world without slavery, but it, A, it wasn't chattel slavery. It wasn't, you know, and B, the fact that slavery is like in the Torah is like, is because the Torah was written like 2,500 years ago or older and slaves are everywhere. So I, I'm not sure that that's relevant, to be honest. I, I don't, again, I, and I think if we go the direction of like, oh, we can only talk about this if like our people were never involved with this, and that's crazy. It's like everyone's involved in it. Like that's, that's all point. And the whole point is to get away from this. Well, you guys were slave traders too. Or, you know, it's, it's to say these are social sins. These are societal sins. Um, so that's number one. Number two is the scale of both the enslavement and the brutality is really unparalleled in history. And it began in the Caribbean with this, with the sugar plantations. And it was, it was a systematic system of torture in order to produce the highest return on the cotton crop. I think there was nothing in the ancient world or the medieval world that could begin, could begin to compare. So that's a, it's a little bit apples and oranges. Um, you know, it, it's about what we today consider a sin and how we under, understand that and how we atone for it and our, our notion of sin. What, what I got from the priestly literature was mechanisms for atoning for sin, not what our ancestors thought was sin. <laughs> if we go in that, like we're in a totally different ballpark. They did not think slavery was a sin. Unless, you know, unless it was done to us. Um, okay. You know, and obviously other ideas of, they had other ideas of things that were sinful that we don't consider sinful. But again, I think there are mechanisms for dealing with communal sin as opposed to what the sins were are brilliant. And that we should, we should learn from them. I want to emphasize this point. Um, we've already touched on it, but the idea that sin is corporate and need not be intentional and is shared universally. Um, whatever sin we're talking about, um, it's very moving to me. And it reminds me also of the essay you wrote on Evolve about anti-Semitism and about how anti-Semitism is baked into the last 2,000 years of Western civilization. So, of course, everybody is anti-Semitic to some extent, including Jews. Um, mm -hmm. this, it's, uh, it's an opportunity for relaxing and forgiveness and healing. I, I think you're really onto something important. Thank you. I, I think, yeah, that, that feels to me like one of the central points. And I, I think, I think it is important. I think until we can be in that place, we'll be defensive. And if we're defensive, we can't do the work, you know, we need to do, um, collectively. So thank you. I, I, I'm glad you got that from it. And that is what I really wanted to emphasize. I guess I just, I just want to go back to, um, back to this idea of of um of what you referred to with the book half has has never been told i'll i'll, I'll definitely take uh take the recommendation i mean i think this this idea is 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 really out there now and in, in the august issue of the atlantic uh drew gilpin faust the historian and former president of harvard um tackled the complicated history of race and in virginia and by extension the united states uh uh, writing that it was the unfreedom of 40% of Virginia's population that made the liberty of the rest imaginable as well as materially possible. The economic viability of both the colony and the new nation depended on slave labor. So this, this idea, at least for, for us as Americans, that slavery is, is just fundamentally woven into, into the DNA of our history. How do, you know, how do American Jews um, integrate that with our with our relationship to American society, the idea of the American dream. It just 
it really feels powerful, wrenching. It's 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 hard to know what to do with that. So I, I agree. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about you know what happens when someone finds out something like foundational about their family they didn't know. Like they find out, I don't know, like they're like forty years old and they find out their father is not their biological father. So like it's not like they didn't have the life they had. You know, they, their father's their father, but like all of a sudden they're like, oh my god. There's something about myself I, I didn't know, you know? And so I think, so on the one hand, it changes the picture, but it also doesn't erase the experience they had. So I, I to me, this is like that. It, we should change the picture. We should want to know the real picture. I think as if we bring anything as Jews, it's like we like to study and we want to know the, you know, we, we're not afraid to look at the hard stuff. And that doesn't negate the fact that, you know, for the Jewish people, America has been actually a pretty good homeland for white Jewish, you know, for white, at least for white Jewish immigrants, it's been a good homeland, you know? Toba, it's... Uh... It's just really wonderful I, 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 to listen to you, and I think uh, that's a really appropriate conclusion to this whole conversation. Um, you know, you start the, you start on this topic, and you don't know where it's going to go, and and um, the promise that it can be redemptive uh, is really important and promising and hope filled. And I thank you for that. Amen. May it be so. Thanks so much for listening to our interview with Rabbi Toba Spitzer. If you enjoyed our conversation, please be sure to read her essay, Slavery and Its Atonements, on the Evolve website. What did you think about today's episode? We want to hear from you. Evolve is about curating meaningful conversations, and that includes you. So send us your questions, your comments, your feedback, whatever you've got. You can reach Brian at bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. Evolve, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations, is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Walks. Our theme song, Ilufinu, was composed by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm Brian Schwartzman. And I'm Jacob Staub. And we'll see you next time.